poets and intellectuals of this time, the innovative minds, the intelligentsia, those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers, the revolutionaries, those living apart from this big unrest, those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original and brutal. You have tuned into the Bohemian Beat. I'm Riddy, with you for the next hour with poetry and music. Today we will start with a song inspired by the novel Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse, who lived between 1877 and 1962. He was a German novelist and poet who won the 1946 Nobel Prize in Literature. In the book, the character Siddhartha learns the supreme importance of the need to love the world, humanity, oneself, and the need to respond to one's inner voice. He reached his mythical heights because he was guided by his heart and always tried to act to the heart, to the inner reality. Love, 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 love
soul's been busy, Lord. I got so much to give. Will I learn my lessons all go around again? How many lives will I live? Inside, Song of Siddhartha, inspired by the Herman Hesse's novel Siddhartha. In the novel, Siddhartha is a Brahmin boy brought up in a devout and learned family, but he is restless and full of doubt about the routine of sacrifice, chanting, and meditation. He leaves home and spends time with the ascetics who believe in hard renunciation and numbing of all bodily senses. Yet this path does not bring the salvation Siddhartha seeks. He then goes and meets with Gotama Buddha to hear his teachings. He realizes that what he is seeking is the state Buddha has achieved for himself, yet his teaching does not satisfy him. So he decides to live an ordinary earthly life and try to discover his true self. A long time passes in the world of birds and flowers, sensual pleasures and pains, and money and vices. Initially, Siddhartha participates in ordinary people's activities as if they were just games, and views ordinary people as children and laughs at their childish intensity in their material obsessions. He is able at will to return to that inward mental sanctuary of Siddhartha, the mystic, and not bothered by anything for too long. But sure enough, he soon gets drawn into the whirlpool of materialism and all but forgets his real pursuit. Eventually, though, a bad dream awakens him and he returns to the river of his childhood and youth, utterly shaken and bewildered. This next piece from the novel Siddhartha is from a chapter called By the River. Siddhartha wandered into the forest already far from the town and knew only one thing, that he could not go back that the life he had lived for many years was past, tasted, and drained to a degree of nausea. The songbird was dead. Its death, which he had dreamt about, was the bird of his own heart. He was deeply entangled in sansara. He had drawn nausea and death to himself from all sides, like a sponge that absorbs water until it is full. He was full of ennui, full of misery, full of death. There was nothing left in the world that could attract him, that could give him pleasure and solace. He wished passionately for oblivion, to be at rest, to be dead. If only a flash of lightning would strike him, if only a tiger would come and eat him, if there were only some wine, some poison that would give him oblivion, that would make him forget, that would make him sleep and never awaken. Was there any kind of filth with which he had not bemerged himself? any sin and folly which he had not committed, 
any stain upon his soul for which he alone had not been responsible, was it then possible still to live? Was it possible to take in breath again and again, to breathe out, to feel hunger, to eat again, to sleep again, to lie with woman again? Was this cycle not exhausted and finished for him? Siddhartha reached the long river in the wood, the same river across which a ferryman had once taken him when he was still a young man and had come from Gautama's town. He stopped at this river and stood hesitantly on the bank. Fatigue and hunger had weakened him. Why should he go any further? Where and for what purpose? There was no more purpose. There was nothing more than a deep, painful longing to shake off this whole confused dream. To spit out the stale wine, to make an end to this bitter, painful life. There was a tree on the riverbank, a coconut tree. Siddhartha leaned against it, placed his arm around the trunk and looked down into the green water which flowed beneath them. He looked down and was completely filled with a desire to let himself go and be submerged in the water. A chilly emptiness in the water reflected the terrible emptiness in his soul. Yes, he was at an end. There was nothing more for him but to efface himself, to destroy the unsuccessful structure of his life, to throw it away, mocked at by the gods. That was the deed which he longed to commit, to destroy the form which he hated. Might the fishes devour him, this dog of a Siddhartha, this madman, this corrupted and rotting body, this sluggish and misused soul. Might the fishes and crocodiles devour him. Might the demons tear him into little pieces. With a distorted countenance, he stared into the water. He saw his face reflected and spattered it. He took his arms away from the tree trunk and turned a little so that he would fall headlong and finally go under. He bent with closed eyes towards death. Then from a remote part of his soul, from a past of his tired life, he heard a sound. It was one word, one syllable, which without thinking he spoke indistinctly. The ancient beginning and ending of all Brahman prayers, the holy Om, which had the meaning of the perfect one or perfection. At that moment when the sound of Om reached Siddhartha's ears, his slumbering soul suddenly awakened and he recognized the folly of his actions. Siddhartha was deeply horrified. So that was what he had come to. He was so lost, so confused, so devoid of any reason that he had sought death. This wish, this childish wish, had grown so strong within him to find peace by destroying his body. All the torment of those recent times, all the disillusionment, all the despair had not affected him so much as it did the moment the Om reached his consciousness and he recognized the wretchedness of his crime. Om, he pronounced inwardly, and he was conscious of Brahman, of the indestructibleness of his life. He remembered all that he had forgotten, all that was divine, but it was only for a moment, a flash. Siddhartha sank down to the foot of the coconut tree, overcome by his fatigue. Murmuring Om, he laid his head on the tree roots and sank into a deep sleep.
produced at Bay FM in Byron Bay and heard nationally across the community radio network. We just heard Adam Shake with Om, and before that, Maxim reading from a novel called Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse. This next piece, called The Symbolism of Om, is from a lecture by Joseph Campbell, the famous American authority on mythology, who lived between 1904 and 1987. Campbell developed the idea that myths provide ways in which all human cultures express their ideas about themselves and about the natural and supernatural forces they cannot control. He became particularly interested in the myths that tell of an individual, usually a man, who leaves the ordinary world and enters the supernatural world. There he learns of his heroic destiny and receives charms or magical weapons. The man defeats the force that oppose him and returns with new knowledge and new powers to the society from which he came. Campbell called this story the monomyth of the hero because he found versions of it in nearly every culture. That sound is Om. You've heard the sacred syllable Om and this is it. This is the sound that is not made by two things striking together. <coughs> now. The sound O in Sanskrit is analyzed into two sounds, A and U. So this can be written either O-M or A-U-M, and you'll see it both ways. When one pronounces OM, the sound starts in the back of the mouth, ah, and then it goes, fills the mouth cavity, oo, and then it closes at the lips, mm. If this is pronounced correctly, and it's not an easy thing to do, because you have to pronounce it in such a way that you get not only the ao, but also the ai at the same time, and I just don't know how to do that. The, uh, the notion is that you have pronounced all the sounds that are in words, so that all words are simply fragments of om, just as all images are fragments of that great cosmic image. Om is God. Om is God as sound. We usually think of the divine as a form, as an image, but this is the sound aspect of the form which we're going to find when we meet God. This is the sound of God, the sound of the Lord of the world, out of whose thoughts, out of whose being, out of whose energy substance, the world is a precipitation. <clears throat> so all words are fragments of Om. Om is the word of words, what we call the logos. Consonants are simply interruptions of these vowels sounds, according to this view. Now they go a step further with Om. Since Om is the lord of the world, everything in the world and all the aspects of the world must be somehow understood to be included in Om. Well, to understand it this way, we have to uh, say some things in an allegorical way. Ah, that fine open beginning, is associated with waking consciousness, the way we experience things when we are awake. Now, when we are awake, the objects that we see are not ourselves. That is to say, subject of knowledge and object of knowledge are different from each other. In waking consciousness, Aristotelian logic prevails. A is not B. 
I am not what I see. Also, the objects that we see are what are called gross objects. They are made of heavy substance. They are not self-luminous. They have to be illuminated from without. Ooh is associated with dream consciousness. Now, this is a quite different consciousness. In dream, you are the subject of knowledge. You see the dream. But you are also the object of knowledge. It's your substance that brings forth the dream. And though subject and object seem to be different from each other, on this stage, they're not. At this point, Aristotelian logic does not work. The subject and object are the same. Furthermore, the, the objects are subtle objects. They are self-luminous. You don't have to turn a light on to see the objects in your dream. They are self-luminous, and they change form very rapidly. They are what are called subtle objects. The M of Om, the M, is associated with dreamless, deep sleep. Now, this is the realm of mystery. <coughs> Consciousness is there, potential, because the person asleep is conscious, but unconscious. I'd say we know if he woke him, there would be consciousness there. There's consciousness there waiting to come forth again. And it'll come forth through these two zones, dream and waking. But at this point, it is covered with darkness. It is consciousness covered with darkness, become unconscious. Now let's think about that consciousness which is unconscious. It is conscious of nothing. That's to say, it is not specific. It is not consciousness in relation to any object, either dream object or waking object. Now, not all of us can turn inward and go through this psychological discipline that I've been describing of bringing the kundalini up the spine through breathing through the left nostril, imagining the breath to go down the spine, out through the right nostril, in through the right, all these postures and all. But all of us are in action, and we can practice a yoga of action as follows. Do what you conceive to be your duty without either desire or fear for the fruits. Without desire or fear for the fruits, either for yourself or for others. This is a horrendous teaching. The big difference between its manifestation in the Orient and the way it might be manifest here is in this point. In the Orient, a person's duty is dictated to him by his society. That is to say, the society imprints on the individual a system of duties which he is expected to uh, render without criticism the duties of his caste, whatever they may be. And that's why Krishna said, you are a warrior. But in our society, we have the idea of self-responsible criticism, self-responsible judgment. Every individual, not simply an imprinted um, robot doing what he is told, but a developed, conscious, cogitating, criticizing, judging individual self-responsible for his actions. Not the good soldier, but the good citizen. And 
in relation to what that level of your consciousness tells you is your duty, you are to do it in terms of this doctrine, and you are then practicing the yoga of action. Yeah.
You are listening to The Bohemian Beat, brought to you by the Community Radio Network. That was MC Yogi, Go Ray and Duke with Bolo Bolo, and before that from a series of lectures given by Joseph Campbell called The Mystical Traditions of India. One of India's great mystical poets is Rabindranath Tagore, who lived between 1861 and 1941. He is considered one of the most influential cultural and political figures in the history of modern India. In 1913, Tagore won the Nobel Prize in Literature, the first Asian writer to receive the award. Tagore's writings show his sympathy for India's downtrodden, and he supported India's independence movement from British colonial rule. Tagore was an internationalist in spirit, stressing the need for a dialogue between the world's diverse cultures. He opposed imperialism and supported Indian nationalists and urged the masses to avoid victimology and instead seek self-help and education. And he saw the presence of British administration as a political symptom of our social disease. He maintained that even for those at the extremes of poverty, there can be no question of blind revolution. Preferable to it was a steady and purposeful education. In his work, Sadhana, The Realization of Life, he says, I quote, So I repeat, we never can have a true view of man unless we have a love for him. Civilization must be judged and prized not by the amount of power it has developed, but by how much it has evolved and given expression to by its laws and institutions, the love of humanity. These views enraged many, and he narrowly escaped a few assassination attempts. This next poem by Tagore is called Journey to an Unknown Destination, and is read by Michael Sharman. How much further will you take me? Tell me. At which port will drop anchor this golden boat you are steering? Whenever I ask you, lady from some foreign land, sweet smiling, you only smile. I fail to understand what you have in mind. What does your move suggest? You point your finger in silence to the overflowing water, endless to the sun at one end of the sky, going down in the west. What is it we shall find there? Why are we travelling? In which quest? Tell me. I ask you. You, stranger. Over there, where the day at evening's call is burning itself out, in a funeral pyre, and waves are flashing like liquid fire on the backdrop of the molten sky, where quarters appear as if about to shed tears. Is that where you live? Beyond the wave-torn sea, at the foot of the cloud-kissed hill, where the setting sun disappears? You smile, looking at my face, but not a word about where the boat veers. The wind moans in a constant sigh, the heaving waves roar in a passion high, the deep blue water is anguished. I look around, no bank is to be found as if limitless tears flood this earth and then quiver. Yet there plies this golden boat, there the still, still glowing evening rays float. 
why do you sit amidst it all in a silent laughter? It is beyond me to tell why in it you take so much pleasure. Who will come with me? When first you had called, I looked at your eyes on a fresh morn. You spread your hands westward to show the boundless ocean that there flows, where restless light shimmers like hope in some breast. I boarded and asked, does new life await? Does hope's dream reap there a golden harvest? You looked and smiled as before, silent. Since then, clouds have gathered at times, at times has arisen the sun. Now the sea was rough, now it looked a tranquil picture. Time goes past, the sail moves in the wind. The golden boat has disappeared, I find. In the west, the sun descends towards its hillside rest. Let me ask you once again, does soothing death here await? Is there peace? Can one find sleep under this dark's breast? You only smile, only your eyes are alive. There is silence from the rest. Soon the dark night will spread its wings and arrive. The golden light will disappear from the evening sky. Now remains only your body scent, the splashing of water's current. Your hair, windswept on my body, flies. And when heart fluttering, body benumbed, anxiously, I shall call you and ask, Where are you? Come close. Let me feel your touch. You will not speak and I shall not see even your silent smile. Shanti, 
Shanti. This is the Bohemian Beat, and that was a poem by the great Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore called Journey to an Unknown Destination. Tagore wrote novels, essays, short stories, travelogues, dramas, and thousands of songs. However, he is mostly known for his poetry, which he wrote to the end of his life. I quote, I'm lost in the middle of my birthday. I want my friends, their touch, with the earth's last love. I will take life's final offering. I will take the human's last blessing. Today my sack is empty. I have given completely whatever I had to give. In return, if I receive anything, some love, some forgiveness, then I will take it with me when I step on the boat that crosses to the festival of the worldless end. This next piece, called The Trumpet, is from a very, very old recording of Tagore from an album called The Voice of Rabindranath Tagore. The trumpet lies in the dust. The wind is weary. The light is dead. Ah, the evil day. Come, fighters, carrying your flags and singers with your war songs. Come, pilgrims of the march, hurrying on your journey. The trumpet lies in the dust, waiting for us. I was on my way to the temple with my evening offerings, seeking for a place of rest after the day's dusty toil, hoping my hurts would be healed and the stains in my garment washed white when I found thy trumpet lying in the dust. Was it not the hour for me to light my evening lamp? Had not the night sung its lullaby to the stars? Oh, thou blood-red rose, my poppies of sleep have failed and faded. I was certain my wanderings were over and my debts all paid. When suddenly I came upon thy trumpet lying in the dust, Strike my drowsy heart with thy spell of youth. Let my joy in life blaze up in fire. Let the shafts of awakening fly through the heart of night and a thrill of dread shake blindness and palsy. I have come to raise thy trumpet from the dust. Sleep is no more for me. My walk shall be through showers of arrows. Some shall run out of their houses and come to my side. Some shall weep. Some in their beds shall toss and groan in dim dreams. For tonight thy trumpet shall be sounded. From thee I have asked peace, only to find shame. Now I stand before thee, help me to put on my armor. 
Let hard blows of trouble strike fire into my life. Let my heart beat in pain the drum of thy victory. My hands shall be utterly emptied to take up thy trumpet.
ಪರಮೇಶ್ವರಿ ಭಾರತಿ ಭಾರ್ಗವಿ ಶೋಕ ವಿನಾಶಿನಿ ರತ್ನಮಯೇ ಮಣಿಮಯ ಭೂಷಿತ ಕರ್ಣ ವಿಭೂಷಣ ಶಾಂತಿ ಸಮಾವೃತ ಹಾಸ್ಯ ಮುಖೇ Just Jag, Ram Dixit and Shweta Pandit with Ashta Lakshmi Estrota from the album called Maha Lakshmi. Maha Lakshmi is a Hindu goddess who presides over 18 forms of wealth, including the spiritual knowledge or jnana, the teaching or imparting the spiritual knowledge to the entire world without any class difference. And before that, the trumpet by Rabindranath Tagore. We will end with a track, Return to Country, by Carrie Ann Cox, a true troubadour in the feminine form and working towards a better vision for her people, for all people. In terms of her music, she has said, I quote, This music came from all those experiences because when I went through all those experiences, these songs were my friend, my healer. They were a medium and a way for me to express my truths and take the pain out of me. I hope you've enjoyed this sound bath over the airways with me today. I certainly have. Thank you for tuning in to the Bohemian Beat. I'm ready and we'll be back next week. Same beat time, same Bohemian frequency. 
Oh, and um, don't forget to check out my newly updated and operational website, the Bohemian Beat, one word, dot com. I'm gonna leave your wall goodbye I'm gonna fly my wings I'm gonna leave your wall goodbye So I'm not gonna let you into my head Country's calling me Return home to country It's been a long, long time Long, long time Since my feet touched the ground And now I wanna come back home When you let me take my place Cause I choose to So I'm not gonna let you into my head Culture is my soul I fly my wings I sit around home and country Conscious, conscious, conscious is world of illusion. 
Cause we've been living too long Living in lies and illusions Return home to country Fly my wings Return home to country 